The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome and thank you for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. You know, ancient Jewish wisdom articulates a very specific piece of advice, and that is do not try and comfort people while they are still in the throes of whatever loss is impacting them. Um, if, if somebody has just uh, lost his business or lost their home or had a, a, a major financial setback and it's just happened, this is really not the right time to say to them, well, you know, this can be a blessing in disguise. No, you know what? Your friendship is best just silent at that point. There is nothing to say. There are no words that make the pain go away. And uh, if somebody is a mourner, if somebody has lost somebody, the language that is used is if their dead still lies before them, don't try and comfort them. And so I've waited a a little while since the uh, latest two mass murders to uh, be inflicted on the United States of America Uh, one in El Paso, Texas, and one in Dayton, Ohio. But uh, I do need to talk to you a little bit about death in general and perhaps about mass shootings in the United States of America in particular. Uh, First of all, what uh, I want to stress is that almost Everything one hears out there about these latest two horrible events um, is political propaganda and is completely baseless and without any value to you at all. You have heard um, political leaders. It's even silly to call these politicians leaders. You know, a leader is defined very simply. A leader is somebody who, if if he looks back, sees people following. That's what a leader is. Self-declared leader doesn't mean anything. Hoping to become a leader doesn't mean anything. So I shouldn't really even talk about these people as leaders. But uh, politicians in the days following these uh, uh, shooting attacks on large numbers of Americans um, you know, speak about how the president is to blame. And this has become a major talking point to the extent that, I mean, is there anybody really, is, are there any thoughtful, thoughtful people left in the United States of America who listen to that and say, yeah, yeah, President Trump is to blame. He's, he's, the, he's the reason for this. Well, um, if those people are saying that, then I can only hope that uh, a few years ago when uh, San Bernardino took place or when Orlando took place, which were also mass shootings, I hope people, the same people, then said, yeah, that's Obama. That's because of Obama. And if you didn't do that, then you are being thoroughly dishonest and you should be ashamed of yourself. Um, This is really silly. Some of the killers have been uh, left-leaning individuals. 
Uh, some of the killers have been right-leaning individuals. Many of them are Muslims. We, we may as well acknowledge that simple truth and that simple reality. But the notion that people act in a certain way because some political leader says something, look, it's manifestly untrue. Over the years, various different presidents have pushed and promoted things like love, abstinence, compassion, uh, an end to crime, and nobody pays the slightest attention. There is not even the slightest statistical uptick of improvement. It's happened in Baltimore, it happened in St. Louis, it happened in Chicago. Various politicians go, oh, we must have a weekend devoted to end the shooting, stop the bloodshed. And they even gather on a street corner and they have a candlelight vigil. And it makes not a little bit of difference. And so um, the, uh, the idea that all of a sudden... Like no president previously, only this president has the ability to persuade um, even left-leaning liberal shooters to pick up their weapons and go off to murder some people. Uh, it's laughable, and uh, it's a waste of any thoughtful person's time. Then you'll hear other politicians using the occasion to push their agenda of uh, banning all firearms owned by private citizens in the United States of America. Again, this comes from sometimes a childlike faith in government. Oh, government is the only entity that should have the ability to use force, let alone that the use of force is very often needed to protect people uh, against criminals that government has failed to impede in their vile uh, preying on innocent citizens. So the idea that, uh, well, this shooting should be the last one. This is now the time we must ban guns. Look, this is equally asinine. When banning of guns in Baltimore and Chicago and St. Louis slow down the carnage, then we can consider eviscerating the Second Amendment, right? I'm a reasonable guy. Uh, you, you know, guns are already prohibited in Chicago. Guns are prohibited in Baltimore. Guns are prohibited in St. Louis. And yet, how many people are shot to death with guns in those three cities every single week? So obviously, banning guns is not something that the government has successfully achieved. And the notion that, oh, this time, oh, now the federal government will ban, this will be different. Look, uh, there are federal bans that the government has in place. When banning drugs like opioids actually stops drug abuse, we can talk. Uh, you remember Prohibition? I mean, you probably don't, but it was 1920 to 1933. Well, they had this great idea. We're going to end drinking in America. Leave aside for the moment the political mechanisms that brought that about and how it came to be. But um, here's the interesting thing. Government banned all alcohol. Okay. Well, if we actually look at the numbers, if we look at the facts, what we find is that 
during the first year, year and a half, even up to two years, there actually was a drop in alcohol consumption. And the politicians crowed in delight. Oh, look what we have achieved. And then the market roared into action. And literally, my friends, within a couple of years, people were drinking just as much as before. You know, there is this childlike faith in government. People think that when government decrees, it's a little bit like uh, the book of Genesis at the beginning where God says, let there be, and there was. It doesn't quite work that way. Let there be a national train network. Let's call it Amtrak. Really? How well has that worked? Let there be a pay-its-own-way system of carrying the mail around the country. And what we get is the United States Postal Service. <laughs> Let there be a medical system that brings high-quality care to all for an affordable price. It was actually even called the Affordable Care Act till everyone realized it was actually Obamacare. How well did that work? Now, let's face it. When government says, let's stop the killing by banning guns, yeah, I don't think so. Not till you show me something else that the government has kept its word on, you know, other than growing itself and confiscating ever greater amounts of the hard-earned money of creative and productive citizens. So is there really no way to stop these mass killings? So I think what we need to do, and this is not going to be morbid at all, this is a sort of pre-warning, uh, you, you know, this is not going to be depressing or miserable, but we are going to talk about death. So pull up your chairs, relax, be comfortable, and let us examine as much as we can in the short time we have to share today of death. Uh, you know, I am originally an African. Uh, I grew up on the southern end of the African continent, and uh, I used to travel with my family very often uh, to go on animal-watching uh, safaris. Uh, we were not hunters, uh, but to some extent we were photographers, but not even really ardent at that, although I have quite a, a lot of pictures. Uh, but we were... Um, we just loved watching the animals. We just we loved the whole camping, and we'd go for a week, ten days at a time, and camp, and then spend our days uh, driving down tracks and trails uh, where where there were animals. Sometimes we had native trackers with us, and and we saw a lot of animals. It was wonderful. One of the things that uh, you often heard, and I, I think it's fairly well known even in this country, they talk about the elephant's graveyard. Have you ever heard that spoken about? Where does that myth come from? It's a mythology, but um, widely believed that there is, oh, there's some place where elephants go to die. The reason for that is that... Uh, you know, there are parts of Africa where there are quite a lot of elephants. And yes, it's true, elephants live for a long time. But still, the elephants do die. And so people who spend a lot of time in the bush uh, ought to be seeing every now and then, you ought to see an elephant carcass or an elephant skeleton. Nobody, nobody I know, I've never seen it, and nobody I know has seen it, with the exception of when poachers have shot uh, elephants and sawn off their tusks for the ivory business. 
But in terms of a naturally dying elephant, they don't have a lot of predators either, I have to tell you. In terms of naturally dying elephants, nobody really sees corpses or skeletons of elephants. And so uh, the mythology arose that there must be some place where elephants go and all of them, there's some place. And, you know, these dreams of immense riches would come to whoever found the elephant's graveyard because you, you would just have all these uh, skeletons with ivory tusks, huge ivory tusks, ready for the taking. Well, there is no such place. Uh, The truth is that uh, when sensing death, elephants, like every other creature, do seek seclusion. This is true. And uh, they die in some hidden spot, some overgrown gully, some densely wooded thicket, and, uh, and that's where they die. And you'd really have to go probing, which is sort of way off the track. Most people don't do that in order to find an elephant uh, skeleton. But uh, there is no elephant's graveyard. But it is true that, like almost all other creatures, uh, they seek seclusion in death. Now, I- imagine taking a walk down a uh, an African trail uh, in the countryside. And um, would you agree with me that you can pretty much see 100 feet to your left, you can see 100 feet to your right, right 100 feet, 33 yards. Uh, you can pretty much see. So if there, even, even birds you'll spot at 100 feet. Anyone with half-decent eyesight will see that. So if there's... If there's 100 feet in front, you'll see where I'm going in a minute, 100 feet in front of you and 100 feet behind you and 100 feet to either side, um, that would be uh, 40, what's it, 100 plus 100, so it's 200. You're You're in the middle of a square, 200 feet on the side. And 200 multiplied by 200 is 40,000. So as you walk along, you are surrounded by a moving square of 40,000 square feet. Now, uh, in general terms, the highest that birds fly is about 5,000 feet. Most of the time, they're much lower than that. But that would be the highest. So if we now imagine a column of air, a square cross-section column of air up above your head, as you're walking down the trail, that uh, is 100 feet to either side of you, 100 feet front and back, and going up 5,000 feet, you are walking at the bottom of a huge 5,000 feet tall column of air that contains 200 million cubic feet. Well, using readily available numbers for, on average, how many birds and insects are there in one cubic feet of African countryside? Well, you see where I'm going here. When you walk down the, uh, the trail in, in Africa, and, and I happen to have figures for Africa, I can't imagine that they're very different for uh, Asia or the United States or parts of Europe. But uh, looking at my African figures, it is perfectly clear that as you walk down the road at the bottom of this huge tall column of air measuring 200 million cubic feet, you should pretty much be having to dodge dying birds, right? In the wild, uh, a bird doesn't live as long as it does as a pet. 
in the wild, birds die uh, one, two, three years, that's that sort of time range. And because of the huge volume of birds that are in this 200 million cubic feet of air, you should be dodging dying birds all the time. They should be plummeting down within your range of vision. Uh, insects. Insects have a much shorter lifespan. They should be dying at a much higher rate, and they should be plummeting down. And yet, you don't see this. You don't. You don't even see the carcasses of birds. You should see them all the time. I mean, there are so many pigeons in New York. You should be walking down the street. There should be dead pigeons all over the place. Now, admittedly, there are um, there are various uh, falcons and, and buzzards that, that'll eat them. Uh, the city cleans them up. But still, you know, New York is not that punctilious um, about its cleanup. And so where are all the dead pigeons? You don't see them any more than you see them in Africa. And uh, the mystery, well, let me tell you in just a moment. But first of all, I want to tell you about a product that you can obtain right now. And that is a product called Thought Tools. Well, it's a book. As a matter of fact, it's three volumes, volume one, volume two, and volume three. And here's what's so nice about it. Have you ever wondered about, uh, you know, what can I talk about? I'm, I'm having dinner with my family. I'm having dinner with some friends. I'm having dinner with my children. I'd like to have something substantive to talk about. I don't want to talk about people because that's gossip. Talking about things usually devolves into things that people have either just bought or they wish they could buy. Talking about ideas actually builds bonds and connections between people. So um, what do I talk about? Well, you just go to your bookcase. You pull out either Volume 1, Volume 2, or Volume 3 of Thought Tools. And each one of these has over 50 different um, topics. And what's nice is these are short. None of them is more than a 1,000 words at most. So you can read that in a couple of minutes. You get the hang of it, and you've now got a theme, an idea to, to share and discuss with other people, which automatically kicks off a conversation, at the end of which you all feel closer together because you've explored an ultimate issue. You've explored something that really matters, something that counts. So uh, right now on our website at rabbidaniellappin.com, you can get hold of uh, Volume 1 or Volume 2 or Volume 3 or all together as a set, 1, 2, and 3, of the Thought Tool books, and uh, you will find that they are on a price that has been specially set for people listening to this show, and it's at rabbidaniellappin.com. Now, here's the nice thing. Uh, you can also go ahead and get them on Kindle. Now, uh, we don't control Amazon's prices, and so the price is what it is, and I don't know offhand exactly what it is right now, but it's not expensive, that I can tell you. And so you could download uh, Thought Tools, Volume 1, 2, or 3, or all of them uh, at, uh, at Amazon onto your Kindle account. All of these things available right now. So uh, do us both a favor and let us engage in a mutually rewarding financial transaction where you get thought tools and I get to put sugar in my cornflakes tomorrow morning. 
So that's um, that's the the thought tools. And now, I said I would tell you uh, why it is that you do not walk down the street and have to dodge dying birds plummeting down around you. Uh, why it is that um, you you don't see dead dogs and cats? Let's let's take a look at that for the moment. Sixty eight percent. That's right. Sixty eight percent of households have a pet. Uh, slightly more of them are dogs than cats, but uh, the total is round about 100 million cats and 100 million dogs in America. That's 200 million pets, uh, dogs and cats, and we're 330 million people. So uh, that means that uh, there is a dog or a cat for, or let's put it this way, there are two dogs or two cats or a cat and a dog for every three people. In the country. That's a lot of dogs and cats. Now, dogs and cats have a lifespan, and that means that if there's 200 million of them in the, in the country, and that, that means that nearly 70% of the homes you walk by when you take your evening stroll, or 70% of the homes you run by when you do your five-mile run twice a week, 70% of them have a dog or a cat. And those dogs and cats also die, and some of them die in the house, and the, the, the people then go and bury them in a pet cemetery or put them in a shoebox and put them in the garden, whatever people do. Um, but surely, in spite of that, with that many dogs and cats, don't you think you ought to see some dead dogs and cats when you're out for a walk? They got, I mean, there's got to be a bunch of, and by the way, those numbers of 200 million dogs and cats do not count the strays. There are stray dogs and stray cats, feral creatures around any urban neighborhood. When was the last time you saw a dead cat or dog in the street that hadn't been run over by a car, but just one that had died? When did you see that? And my guess is not very often. You just don't see it. Now, if you work this out statistically, if you do a five-mile urban run, you literally should see about 100 dead animals on your run. If your eyes are open, you ought to see about 100 dead animals. And you don't. You really don't. Now, the city does clean them up eventually, but still. And yes, there are scavengers like buzzards and, and other carrion-eating birds, but still, unless hit by a car, you just don't see creatures that die. But they must do, and they do. How often do you see dead deer? Right? Again, it's too rare. You're supposed to, if you figure out the deer population in many urban areas, you ought to see a whole lot of them. And we don't. Why? My friends, that's exactly what I've been talking about. Just like elephants and just like everything else, all creatures seek privacy and seclusion when they die. Let me give you the general principle from ancient Jewish wisdom. Nature is reticent about death. Nature is reticent about death. Why is that? Well, secular materialists would say something like, well... Animals feel vulnerable as they're getting ready to die, and so they, they seek somewhere where their predators are unable to find them. 
there are many challenges to that explanation, and uh, and most naturalists are not really happy with it and don't feel it's sufficient. But it's that kind of explanation that secular materialists adopt. What do I say? What I say is quite different and uh, and quite simple. I explain it through the lens of ancient Jewish wisdom, and um, and that is that death is a huge problem. And I'm going to explain in more detail, but basically, it makes it very difficult for us to be happy. It makes it very difficult for us to live our lives and take care of business and find joy. If death is ever-present, it's just plain too depressing. It's just hard. And... um, and just the inevitability and the reality of death. If we are always inescapably aware of it, just causes problems. One of the problems is a perpetual state of sadness and depression. Essentially, one is in a state of perfectly understandable, perpetual mourning for oneself. You are crying for your lost youth, You are moaning and mourning, I should say, uh, your ultimate demise, and it's inescapable. It's just all over you. And how can you live like that? It's not possible. And the the reason that God put death in the world, I'm not going to touch on today. This is not a theological discussion. It's a natural history discussion, if anything. But uh, what I am talking about is how do we deal with it? dealing with it. In other words, let's just accept it's a reality. And just like taxes, right? How do we deal with taxes? You get yourself a top-rate tax accountant. That's how you deal with taxes. Uh, How do you deal with, with death? Well, you understand what your rabbi teaches from ancient Jewish wisdom, and uh, where necessary, you implement it in your life. Uh, so I just want to make sure everyone has this clear then, that uh, that the prevalence of death and its reality and its inevitability, when that pushes itself into the forefront of our consciousness, it is extremely difficult to find joy. It's difficult to go about our business and take care of things. So um, what, do, what do we do? Okay, well, if you are a mogul, then you arrange cryogenic freezing of your body. uh, And you pay the money for it up front. And this way, uh, you are confident that after you die, your body will be immediately flash frozen. And then one day when a uh, cure to age is found, you will be resuscitated, you'll come back. Well, this little fantasy gives you, and, and again, I'm sorry to call it a fantasy, Uh, if you happen to be a mogul who has arranged for cryogenic freezing of your body after you are embraced by the good Lord at the end of your days, uh, I'm really sorry to disabuse you of that notion. Well, not really, because I think in in removing um, uh, illusions, I'm performing a service. Uh, I don't really think that any of you really want me to massage you with warm butter. No, you don't. 
And so I'm going to tell you that uh, the cryogenic freezing ploy is a complete fantasy. Save your money, not going to do anything at all. But the people who do it from that get enough peace of mind that they're able to sort of go about their business and live their lives. Now, uh, I'm going to tell you about somebody who, you know, <laughs> may he live and be well, but he's 97 years old at the time I'm taping this, and it almost looks as if he has found the secret to eternal life, the fountain of youth. And I'll tell you about him in just a moment. But first of all, I wanted to tell you that I'm going to be appearing um, next Sunday at Covenant Church in Carrollton, Texas. So any of you who would like to meet and get together, please come over to Covenant Church on Sunday morning for either the first or the second service. I'll be uh, teaching at both those services, and I very much look forward to the opportunity of signing your books or shaking hands and catching up with you uh, in, uh, after each service. So that's Covenant Church in Carrollton, Texas. That's uh, Sunday, the 18th of uh, August. And also, um, people can watch that on Covenant's live stream. So if you're not able to make it, please go ahead and uh, watch the program at uh, on Covenant Church's live stream. That'll be just fine. Then um, a little bit after that, 11th of September, 11th of September, I am going to be speaking for the Proven Conference. Now, this is an amazing conference. Um, there are not a lot of seats left. I'll, I'll tell you that. Uh, there's already 600 people enrolled to come, and I don't know that they can have any more. Uh, this will be at the Vineyard Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, on September the Wednesday, September the 11th. It's, a, it's an all-day financial conference at a Vineyard Church. And uh, this is really a fantastic program. I've spoken for them before, about five years ago, when they held their conference in Dallas. If you are interested in learning how to open a, a, a business, you know, let's say you, you have a job, but you have spare time. You've decided you're going to stop wasting your time watching videos, and you'd like to use some of your time to develop a second or maybe a third stream of revenue. And I would applaud that. If you have that resolve, do that. And uh, if you perhaps don't know where to start, uh, you would come along to this event. Now, let me give you the website. It's the website is uh, a little bit long, but the words are well-known words, so you won't have any trouble stringing them together in the URL of your favorite browser, theprovenconference.com. Got it? Proven, as in I proved it. The Proven conference.com and uh, you will be able to register for this event um, you'll meet a whole lot of people who are making serious money on the internet by the way uh, a central focus of the conference is selling on amazon how to be a third party party seller on amazon uh, my friend jim who is a uh, a renowned and widely accepted expert. He's, even Amazon acknowledges him as uh, the in the top 10% of all the, I think it's about 2 million people who sell on Amazon. 
Uh, Jim really knows what he's doing. This is his conference, and he is going to be explaining, along with a number of hand-picked people. Basically, I have no doubt, truly. Uh, I, I, I know that I'm giving a, a real endorsement here, and how often have you heard me do this, right? Not so often, uh, but I am. I'm giving a ringing endorsement here that if you are seriously interested in developing an Internet-based business, then I can't imagine, unless you already know what you're doing, unless you have a mentor on hand, uh, I cannot imagine you doing anything more valuable than spending Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, uh, September 11, 12, and 13, at theprovenconference.com, theprovenconference.com, and coming to Illinois and uh, participating in this. You're going to not only get hard information, you're also going to get encouragement. You're going to be literally sitting side by side with people who are eager to share with you what they have already achieved and what you can duplicate and even exceed. Um, Look, I'm a big, big, big believer in not having only one stream of income. And uh, if, if you have a job, that's great. That doesn't mean you shouldn't also be doing something else. If you have one small business, then start another one. Um, if you if you are retired, stop that. Get out of that state and start building yourself an Internet-based business. Uh, I'm not saying it's easy and anybody can just jump into it and do it, but I am saying that with proper guidance, with mentors, with educators, with people who are going to literally – help you walk through the steps, uh, finding the things to sell, how to sell them, how to set up the website, every single meticulous detail. Uh, All of that we'll be talking about. I'll be speaking on Wednesday morning and Wednesday afternoon, but I am only a very tiny part. And uh, the really important part of the conference are the presentations by, and there are many, many, many presentations in those three days by people who really, really know what they are doing. So um, uh, I'm going to be there with Jim Cockrum at the Proven Conference, and uh, I look forward. I mean, I know that many of you, many people who know me will be there. I'm looking forward to meeting you all, and don't hesitate to ask me to sign your copies of Business Secrets from the Bible or your copies of uh, uh, the Thought Tool books, which I am uh, telling you about advertising and promoting actually today. So all of that uh, is what will happen in Champaign, Illinois, September 11th, 12th, and 13th. Now, uh, okay, so... Uh, taking this now a little bit further, uh, I said I was going to tell you about somebody who is actually 97, and God bless him. Uh, his politics could not be more different from mine. He is a, um, a, a secularized Jew. I think I think he'd be the first to agree with that assessment. Uh, he doesn't have much time for Judaism as a faith and a religion. He doesn't have much time for the Bible. His name is Norman Lear. And he is an absolute legend in show business in America. Uh, One of his first great hits was uh, uh, All in the Family. Remember Archie Bunker? Anyway, okay, that was it. Why do I mention Norman Lear at the age of 97? He should stay well. 
um, because the New Yorker magazine and and folks, when I tell you to go ahead and buy a volume of Thought Tools, no, buy all three volumes of Thought Tools. Uh, I am saying that because you owe me one, <laughs> right? I read magazines like The New Yorker so as that you don't have to. That's right. And then I tell you everything you need to know from magazines like The New Yorker or magazines like The Atlantic. These are magazines that are frankly uh, grueling to go through because they are so relentlessly secular materialistic, so relentlessly progressive so relentlessly hostile to my world view. But I am open-minded, and what's more, I am dedicated solemnly to providing you with a service of real value. And so it is, therefore, that uh, in the early part of 2017, there appeared an article in New Yorker magazine. And what I'm going to do is I'm quickly – now, I don't do this often on the show because I know reading something to you uh, is less interesting than just hearing me trying to phrase it or express it in my own words. But the truth is that this is good writing. It's better writing than most of us um, would speak uh, extemporaneously as we talk about something. So uh, I, with no apologies, I am reading – to you sections, and I'm just jumping from section to section, okay? Uh, on a velvety March evening in Mandeville Canyon, high above the city of Los Angeles, Norman Lear's living room was jammed with powerful people eager to learn the secrets of longevity. When the symposium's first speaker asked how many people there wanted to live to the age of 200 if they could remain healthy, every hand in the room went up. When Liz Blackburn, who won a Nobel Prize for her work in genetics, took questions, Goldie Horn, the actress, regal on a comfy sofa, purred, I have a question about the mitochondria. I've been told about a molecule called glutathione that helps the health of the cell. Uh, glutathione is a powerful antioxidant that protects cells and their mitochondria, provide energy, and some of my friends in Hollywood call it the God molecule. Uh, anyways, uh, Liz Blackburn answered that you've got to be very careful because if you take too much of any of these things, they can cause problems having to do with liver and kidney uh, breakdowns and even um, the, uh, the falling off of parts of your skin. So um, Liz Blackburn told Goldie Horn that a varied and healthy diet was the best thing and that there was no single molecule that was the answer to the puzzle of aging. Yet the premise of the whole evening was that answers and maybe even a solution were just around the corner. I'm still reading from New Yorker. Jun Yun, um, J-O-O-N, it sounds like a uh, Korean name. Jun Yun, a doctor who runs a healthcare hedge fund, announced that he and his wife had given the first $2 million towards funding the challenge. I have the idea, he said, that aging is plastic, that it's encoded. If something is encoded, you can crack the code. To growing applause, he continued, if you can crack the code, you can hack the code. It's a big ask. More than 150,000 people die every day. Um, th this is me jumping in here. That is around the world. That's not in the United States. In the United States, about uh, 10,000 people die every day. 
But uh, the majority of aging-related diseases, that's true. Yet Dr. Yoon believes, he said, that if we hack the code correctly, thermodynamically, there should be no reason we cannot defer entropy indefinitely. We can end aging forever. Nicole Shanahan, the founder of a patent management business, announced that her company would oversee longevity-related patents that Yoon had pledged to fund. I'm here with my darling Sergey, she said, referring to her boyfriend, Sergey Brin. So you get an idea of who's in the room, right? Norman Lear, Goldie Horn, Sergey Brin and his girlfriend, the co-founder of Google. And uh, she continues, Nicole Shanahan said, uh, um, Sergey Brin called me yesterday and said, I'm reading this book about the, that says on page 28 that I'm going to die. Uh, I said, what, it says you personally? He said, yeah. Anyway, it turns out it, it is a book that uh, discusses Google's anti-aging research, and it writes that the company probably will not solve death in time to make Google co-founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin immortal. Uh, and so Brin, sitting next to his girlfriend, uh, says to the crowd, uh, yes, I was singled out for death. No, I'm not actually planning to die. Um, continuing in the New Yorker, Martine Rothblatt, the founder of a biotech firm called United Therapeutics, which intends to grow new organs from people's DNA. Clearly, it is possible through technology to make death optional, Rothblatt says. Really? I mean, that's me again. Clearly, it's possible. Really? Uh, Rothblatt suggested that the evening marked an inflection point. Turning to Zhao, she declared, I don't know who he is, it's enormously gratifying to have the epitome of the establishment, the head of the National Academy of Medicine, say, we choose to make death optional. The gathering blazed with a conviction that the, the evening will spark an event that those inside the room will be able to determine the fate of all those outside the room. In the back of the room, Andy Conrad picked up a microphone to challenge the emphasis on extending maximum lifespan, which is currently around 115 years old. Conrad is the CEO of Verily, a life sciences firm owned by Google's parent company, Alphabet. Like most of the scientists in the room, he aims to simply to help people enjoy a few more quality-adjusted life years. He asked, isn't longevity a misnomer? Isn't it living longer well? The biologists in the room all nodded with relief. The scientific consensus transformed. Um, just a second. I've just got to find where this continues. Um, sorry. Uh, sorry, I don't mean to, to hold you up on this. Um, the... Um, <clears throat> Age went from being a final stage, uh, a Time magazine cover from 1958 was titled Growing Old Usefully, and a social issue by 1970, Time had a cover Growing Old in America, the Unwanted Generation to something avoidable. So it went from 1958, Growing Old Usefully, their cover in 70 was Growing Old in America, um, the uh, the unwanted generation in 1996 times cover story was forever young uh 2015 this baby could live to be 142 years old so death is no longer a metaphysical problem just a technical one this is new yorker magazine they okay so now death used to be metaphysical now it's just technical 
a note to the world from Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Nope, it is still a metaphysical, spiritual problem. It is absolutely not a technical one. Not going to happen. The, continuing with the New Yorker, the great majority of longevity scientists are health spanners, not immortalists. They want to give us healthier life followed by compressed morbidity, a quick and painless death. These scientists focus on the timeline. Since 1900, the human lifespan has increased by 30 years, and so as a consequence, have cancer, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, and dementia. Aging is the leading precondition for so many diseases that aging and disease are essentially metonyms. Accidents and violence are the leading causes of death up to the age of 44, and then cancer rises to the top, and then at 65, heart disease. Health spanners want to understand the etiologies of cancer and heart disease and then block them. Why do we almost never get those diseases at the age of two? How can we extend that protection to 102? But if we cured cancer, we would add only 3.3 years to the average life. Solving heart disease gets us an extra four years. If we eliminated all disease, the average lifespan might extend into the 90s. Isn't that amazing? Now, that surprised me. I didn't know that. Um, I, I thought that uh, eliminating all disease would probably push us to, you know, 150 or something. But no, only into the 90s. In order to live longer, we'd have to slow aging itself. Even if we do that, the health spanners believe we're not going to live forever, nor should we. They worry about the rapid drain on natural resources. Oh, the environment. What will happen if everyone lives for so long? And social security. Oh, no. What about the potential for a Stalin or a Mugabe in Zimbabwe to stay in power for centuries? How about the loss of new ideas from the young and the profound lifelong boredom? Amy Wages, a researcher at Harvard, told me part of the meaning of life is that we die. And by the way, that's the first sentence uh, in the entire New Yorker magazine article, <laughs> which makes sense, which is true. She's right. Part of the meaning of life is that we die. Absolutely. Uh, this firm that was created in order to solve the death problem raised $116 million from investors like Jeff Bezos and Peter Thiel, billionaires eager to stretch our lives, or at least their own, to a span that Thiel has pinpointed as forever. In a field rife with charlatans, Ned David, who's uh, the CEO of another company, um, has factored into his fundraising his youthfulness. One class of investor, like Fidelity, finds my youthful appearance alarming, he said. Another class, the Silicon Valley type, a Peter Thiel type, well, they find anyone who looks over 40 to be positively alarming. Um, John Doerr, who is a huge venture capitalist, he's a legend in Silicon Valley uh, venture capital, uh, John Doerr, confronted with the limits to his own lifespan, was galvanized when a CEO, Maris, pitched Google's founder, Sergey Brin, who has a gene variant that predisposes him to Parkinson's disease, loved the idea. In 2013, Google launched Calico, short for the California Life Company, with a billion dollars in funding. Calico added a tremendous amount of validation to aging research. George Vlasic, the head of a biotech startup called Navitor, told me. They've got money, brain power, and time, but Calico has proved to be extremely secretive. Uh, the company declined to comment. A number of longevity scientists confessed to disappointment with Calico's direction. Nir Barzilai, a geneticist who is a leader in the aging field, told me, the truth is we don't know what they're doing, but whatever it is doesn't really seem to be attacking the problem. 
Another scientist who's familiar with Calico's working said that it's pursuing its mission judiciously, but that the company began fatally as a vanity project. The scientist said this is as self-serving as the Medici community building a Renaissance chapel in Italy, but with a little extra Silicon Valley Gnosticism thrown in. It's based on the frustration of many successful rich people that life is too short. We have all this money, but we only get to live a normal lifespan. Maris, who has recently retired from Google Ventures, strongly disagreed with that view. This is not about Silicon Valley billionaires living forever off the blood of young people, he said. It's about a Star Trek future where no one dies of preventable diseases, where life is fair. You hear that? Anytime you hear fair, you know that the uh, people talking are out of touch with reality. No one should die of preventable diseases. We want a world where life is fair. Uh, the reigning view among longevity scientists is that aging is a product not of evolutionary intent, but of evolutionary neglect. We're designed to live long enough to pass in our genes, and what happens afterwards doesn't much matter. Aging doesn't seem to be a program as much as a set of rules about how we fail. Yet the conviction that it must be a program is hard to dislodge from Silicon Valley's algorithmic minds. If it is, then reversing aging would be a mere matter of locating and troubleshooting a recursive loop of code. After all, researchers at Columbia University announced that they'd stored an entire computer operating system as well as a gift card on one strand of DNA. If DNA is just a big drop box for all the back office paperwork that sustains life, how hard can it be to fix a bug, namely aging? A great many longevity papers end with mystified hand-waving in the direction of unknown systemic factors. Solving aging is not just a whodunit, but a howdunit and a whereedunit. And a why, oh, why done it? Tom Rando suggested it's not A causes B causes C causes D causes aging. It's a network diagram of nodes and links, all subject to feedback loops where consequences become causes that gradually become more and more destabilized. If the body is a set of Christmas tree lights, and it's not, then every time you plug it into a new outlet, some lights go on and some go off, stabilizing one part of the network further destabilizes another. That's what makes us also unmakes us, and the process of living seems inextricably bound to the process of dying. Another true word. Larry Ellison, and this is coming to the end of, of the article, Larry Ellison, the co-founder of Oracle, lost his adoptive mother to cancer when he was in college and later donated $370 million to aging research. Death has never made any sense to me, he told a biographer. How can a person be there and then just vanish? Folks, you see what happens when your worldview is so distorted so as to only have a physical component, complete oblivious to a spiritual dimension. Uh, I mean, poor Larry Ellison, who is Jewish, by the way. Bill Maris, who conceived of Calico, said that when he pondered the inevitability of death, I felt that it was maybe our mission here to transcend that and to preserve consciousness indefinitely. This wish to preserve life as we know it, even at the cost of dying, is profoundly human. We are encoded with a belief that death is the mother of beauty, and we are encoded, too, with a contradictory determination to remain exactly as we are forever, or at least for just a bit longer before we have to go. A completely meaningless and trivial paragraph meant absolutely nothing at all. So um, there you see that death is a big problem. 
And if you have a lot of money and you have no spiritual dimension to you, one of the things you'll do is you will fund many charlatans in aging research. Uh, There are plenty, plenty people, and some of them may even have PhDs after their name, who will be perfectly happy to take your millions of dollars uh, in order to fund their research into aging and solving the death conundrum. So uh, that is certainly one way that people have of dealing with death. So if one's response is not sadness and depression, um, then and it's not cryogenics or funding um, research into eternal life, uh, I mean, it's amazing, you know, honestly, this is like you think you're reading something out of the Middle Ages here, but this is like today. Uh, but if you're not going to fund research into death and you're not going to uh, um, get miserable and sad and depressed and uh, you're not going to get cryogenic, then a normal response to death that uh, that is intruding on your consciousness is really just eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow, that's right. Let me read to you a few verses from the 8th chapter of Ecclesiastes. The wise King Solomon wrote, No man has authority over his life breath. There is no authority over the day of death. Therefore, I should praise enjoyment for the only good that a man who believes that can have under the sun is to eat and drink and enjoy himself. That much can accompany him in exchange for his wealth through the days of his life that God has granted him under the sun. As for me, I've set my mind to learn wisdom and to observe the business that goes on in the world, even to the extent of going without sleep day and night. And I've observed all that God brings to pass. Indeed, man cannot guess the events that occur under the sun, for man tries strenuously but fails to guess them, and even if a sage should think to discover them, he would not be able to guess them. So Solomon says, look, uh, you can embark on trying to study wisdom and get how the world works, and that in itself is an antidote to death intruding on your life. Uh, He says, and that's what I've done. I don't try and solve the, the, the deep theological problems of why God created human beings or why God brought death into the world. No. By the way, I came across, due to a friend of mine, uh, John Adams wrote in a letter to Thomas Jefferson in, on September the 15th, 1813. September 15, 1813, John Adams to Thomas Jefferson wrote, <clears throat> You will ask me what conclusion I draw from all this. The answer I drop into myself, and I acknowledge myself to be a fool. I do not know the answer to the theological and metaphysical questions. Nobody but God can see through the immeasurable system. It would be presumption and impiety in me to dogmatize on such subjects. My duties in my little circle I can understand and feel. The duties of a son, a brother, a father, a neighbor, a citizen, that I can see and feel, but I trust the ruler for the rest with his skies. You see, the wisdom that John Adams is articulating there um, is the idea that there are really uh, two categories of information in the world, physical and spiritual. Examples of physical information are questions such as what makes the electron continue circling around the nucleus of an atom, thereby granting the chemical properties of the particular element of of which that atom is the atom of, or that electron is in the atom of. 
um, or uh, you know what causes gravity, or how do we invent penicillin, uh, or can we send a uh, a rocket to Mars? All of these things are material or physical questions, and they have physical and material answers. And as each and every year goes by, we understand more about those things than we did previously. But then we've got a category of spiritual issues. And uh, these are uh, questions such as... um, uh, how do you best maintain a marriage? Um, how how spaced should your children be? Um, how do we deal with death, which happens to be uh, the topic we're talking about today? Uh, these do not respond to scientific inquiry. Uh, understandings of sanity... And here you might think it's a borderline issue, but I don't think it is, because in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, during Sigmund Freud's career, uh, Sigmund Freud was a secularized Jew who um, uh, hated religion, hated the Bible, and hated anything to do with God. And he actually wasted his time writing a number of books on this topic of why nobody should pay attention to religion. That is really what the uh, subject of books like Moses and Monotheism, uh, the making of an illusion, the illusion being religion, of course, and even Totem and Taboo uh, are examples of, of at least three of his books whose main purpose is to try and warn people against religion. Now, uh, what was happening at that point in time, um, and it, it was following on the heels of both Darwin and Marx, and they all three men were, were pretty much working on the same thing, uh, just different applications of it. The same thing they were all working on was... Uh, materializing the world, reducing the complexity of the world to scientific resolution, uh, eliminating any spiritual or godly possibilities in the world. And the certainty with which they did so is in itself unscientific. But uh, the talking just about Freud for the moment, Freud's goal was to render the spiritual side of things irrelevant and even illusory, and um, to take the human mind and to reduce it to essentially a chemical question. And so uh, the whole idea of neurosis in, in Freud's mind uh, the whole idea of of psychotherapy, um, dream analysis, all of these things were designed to be able to take the human mind with all its vast and incalculable complexity and uh, turn it into something that can be resolved by a scientific textbook. 
and by taking somebody through a four or five or eight year degree program at a university, that person will be able to analyze and understand anything to do with uh, with a human being. And uh, this obviously has not been a huge success, but um, one of the, the biggest problems with it is that so much of human complexity is spiritual, and so much of human complexity that is spiritual uh, revolves around the whole question of death. And so the, the it, maybe this would be a, a good place to, to uh, jump into something that will, I think, be helpful for, uh, for, for you. Um, you know, as you can tell, I'm, I'm a little diffident about some of it just because um, it's, it is complex and, uh, and I don't really want to present this in terms of a debate I just want to present it as a series of, uh, of postulates uh, that have stood up through the last 2,000 years plus of ancient Jewish wisdom. And when you think about it, uh, ancient Jewish wisdom has been a really successful and consistent longitudinal study of human beings for 2,000 years. Um, there is a word that is used in translations of the Old Testament. The word is either unclean or impure. And uh, you'll see it in Leviticus chapter 15, for instance, and you'll see it in a number of other places as well. Um, one of the places is, uh, you'll find it, is that um, certain foods... God tells Jews certain foods are impure or unclean for you. Today we might say not kosher, but let's not lose sight of that original technical designation. Uh, another example, uh, a woman during her menstrual period is said to be unclean or impure. Let me immediately at this moment, before anyone gets upset, let me tell you that those two words are appalling and absolutely incorrect translations of what the word really is. The Hebrew word is tameh, and uh, it absolutely does not mean unclean. It absolutely does not mean impure. So what does it mean? Well, what it means is uh, an overwhelming subconscious awareness of death, causing uh, sadness all the way to depression, depression, uh, making it a little less possible for each of us when impacted by this thing that is so dreadfully translated as unclean or impure, uh, makes us just a little less capable of functioning. In other words, uh, makes us a little less coherent, a little less sharp, if you like, a, uh, a little um, um, mentally off our edge just a little bit. Well, why non-kosher food? Why certain animals are said to be unclean or impure for you? It doesn't mean that. It means somehow deathly. Why? Well, because, look, think about this for a second. Um, let's think about, uh, let, let's think of somewhere that you don't particularly like, you know, somewhere that is a uh, not 
much of a city to 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 go and and visit. Well, if you listen to some of the the fuss um, about Baltimore lately, let's say Baltimore. Uh, what is the difference between going to Baltimore and dying? Now, obviously, because of the incredible high murder rate in Baltimore, sometimes those two can be the same thing. Uh, but the, um, the difference between dying and going to Baltimore is that if you don't like Baltimore, you can leave and go somewhere else. But when you've died, you've died. The, in other words, there's the removal of choice. And choicelessness is exactly what we find so very disturbing about death. If it was the sort of thing where, you know, you try it, you don't like it, you come back, it wouldn't be that bothersome to anybody. But one of the whole reasons that uh, some of the technical uh, the technology billionaires in, in Silicon Valley are spending so much money, some of the reasons that Norman Lear is spending so much money uh, trying to find the technical answer to defeat death is because they are bothered by it. It is worrying. It is very disturbing. Um, one of the uh, a, a statement of uh, ancient Jewish wisdom that is a slight uh, rabbit trail here, but I think you'll see why I'm mentioning it, is that being poor is just like being dead. Or I shouldn't say just like, it's similar to being dead. To which anybody who views that scientifically instead of spiritually immediately erupts in outrage. What are you talking about? Uh, poor people. Yeah, yeah. All right. I, I get it. Obviously, it's obviously it's not a scientific analogy. It is a spiritual analogy in the sense that one of the worst things about being poor is you don't have choices. So um, uh, people who have a few dollars can um, can go to can have a private um, club that they join. And uh, they can go there, and if everything is, is, is pleasant and polite and quiet and refined. And poor people have to go to the local city park, which might be uh, – there might be a drunken fight going on terrifying your kids. Poor people don't have choices. Um, uh, people with a few dollars can jump in a, their car or get on a plane – Poor people might have to take a bus or a train. They are much more dependent on public transport. No choice. Public transport will take you where it goes. It's not going to take you exactly where you may choose to go. And so that is one of the uh, snags of death. What's that got to do with animals? Well, one of the ways that Judaism affirms life is by making choices. And so... Uh, and it's it's something one can really feel. When I choose um, not to eat on one of the fast days that are scattered around the Jewish year, six days, uh, I choose not to eat. That is a, a, a great feeling. It's it's affirming my life. It's affirming uh, my joie de vivre and my, my vitality because I'm choosing not to eat. If I choose... To not have a cheeseburger because the kosher laws don't allow dairy and meat products together, that's exciting. It's wonderful. Uh, when I choose to eat only um, a fish that has scales 
and not to eat eels or octopus or shellfish. That is a, g- a great thing. Every, every time I say I'd like some salmon, please, I feel good about that. And this is a very natural, very normal sort of thing. And so that's why uh, the, the Torah defines certain foods as tamay, not unclean or impure, but a slight, tiny, subconscious quality of death to them, meaning that if you ate them as well, then there's nothing you don't eat, and therefore you're not exerting choice, and therefore you are undermining your life as a vital and vibrant, passionate human being. Uh, what's this got to do with a, uh, a time when a woman is having her period? Well, uh, any time life is not fulfilled, there, there is a slight, mini, tiny little, on a micro level, a death event. And, of course, as, uh, as anybody with any understanding of biology knows, uh, the, uh, the monthly uh, biological process is actually the uh, the waste of an egg, the death of an egg, if you like. So uh, the egg, which has the potential to be fertilized by a sperm and to create life, uh, at that a period during those few days, that is being, if you like, flushed out of the body. And... Um, and there, there is one occasion, there is one less opportunity for life. Because the, the way the good Lord arranged it, or for those of you who prefer the way evolution arranged it, um, the uh, difference, a difference between male and female, is that men have an inexhaustible capacity for producing seed. Whereas uh, a woman is born with exactly the number of seeds that she has. There are no more. That's it. When they're gone, they're gone. That's called menopause. And each time one goes, there's one less opportunity. And because giving birth and bringing life into the world is so inextricably bound up with female identity that many, many sensitive women do feel a little a little sad, a little down during those few days when an egg is dying and going away. Uh, and it's perfectly natural and perfectly normal because, gosh, the, yeah, it is. It's a small little mini death or a micro death. Uh, it's an egg that now can never be brought to life. That's it. It's gone. And, um, and that, it's not unclean. It's not impure, but it is tame. That's all it is. And uh, the, the, the cure or the antidote for tame is very often, in many circumstances, water. And the, I think the jubilation that many people feel uh, playing in the waves and, and uh, spending a little you know, a vacation at the seaside, uh, getting into the water, I think some of that may well be uh, a little bit of what we're seeing here, which is that water always, I mean, to anybody, whether it's to a, uh, a tribesman in New Guinea or to a, um, an advertising executive in, on Madison Avenue in New York, water always represents life. And if, uh, if these 
terms unclean and impure, which are horrible, incorrect translations for the Hebrew, which means a very slight, intangible, subtle, subconscious, but nonetheless uh, strong awareness of death uh, or an impactful awareness of death, then water is naturally the antidote. Thus, uh, we see that a lot of ancient Jewish wisdom is focused on keeping life and death separate from one another. This is one of the reasons that the Bible prohibits us from speaking to the dead or having seances or raising the dead. It's not because it can't be done. Now, obviously, most practitioners, I think, are charlatans. But in reality, uh, yes, (laughs) it can be done. And uh, the, the thing is, it shouldn't be done. Why? Because the more contact one has with death, the more awareness of it, the more it intrudes upon one's being, the more disconcerting it is for our mental stability. And, uh, and so what happens when somebody goes to a funeral? Well, anytime somebody goes to a funeral, we have a little ceremony uh, using water to, um, once again, banish that subtle and subconscious uh, impact of a deathly feeling that you can hardly help but have after you've attended a funeral, after you've been at a cemetery. So uh, everything is geared to being to being able to keep life and death separate. Yes, we have to confront death. There are times where we're up against it. We lose somebody, but then we work on trying to get back because the ever-present awareness and impactfulness of death just makes it difficult to keep your mental stability and uh, you know, make right decisions as one goes through life. And so uh, for that reason, nature is reticent about death because if every time you went for a walk, uh, you had to walk around animal corpses, every time you went for a run, uh, you had to dodge birds falling out of the sky, Uh, It would be the most depressing thing imaginable. You'd come back, and instead of coming back from a run elated and uplifted, you'd come back feeling absolutely miserable and horrible about it. So uh, in order for us humans to be able to live a normal life in spite of its dark shadow and uh, to be able to go through life and do your work and relate to friends and family and to find joy without being constantly conscious of the the cold and, and clammy grasp of the grim reaper, you've got to find ways of dealing with it. And a spiritual understanding is absolutely fundamental. Um, if your view of the world is exclusively materialistic, exclusively physical, then you actually have absolutely no way of dealing with death other than freezing your body. (laughs) And there's some dreadful stories about things that have gone wrong with that. Uh, And um, uh, or uh, throwing your energies and efforts into funding attempts to overcome death. I hope you won't consider me to be unduly pessimistic 
when I tell you that that is money down the drain and it's a complete waste of time. Uh, human beings will have to understand death is just a part of life. It really is. And this idea that we can spend billions of dollars, and it, it, it almost is billions already, it's huge sums of money are being uh, assigned to, to defeat death. Um, yeah, it's, um, it, that's not going to do the trick. And uh, you will continue to be um, haunted by the specter of death approaching. And so, <laughs> I know this is. This, I hope I hope this isn't sounding too morbid a show today. But the, it is important material, I think, because um, given the the mass shootings that occur from time to time, uh, yeah, uh, these are tremendously upsetting, and uh, and and I, I wanted to to talk about them. Uh, is there a way to to stop those things happening? Um, I, I will come to that in in a little while. I'm not I'm not quite there yet, but um, uh, it's quite different from saying ending death. In other words, saving your community from violence. That's definitely something you should be trying to do. Uh, looking after your life and the life of your family, obviously. Uh, but defeating death for all of humanity, um, I think there are better things you can do with both your time and your money. Uh, so how do people banish the darkness of death? How do people stop feeling uh, the, 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 uh, the, the cold breath of death on the back of their necks as they go through life? How do you avoid it? Well, some people banish it with bright nightlife uh, and with the enjoyment of every kind of sensual pleasure. And yes, it is true that, um, that you can forget about it. I know if, uh, if you're... Uh, if you're in a very gripping movie or if you're listening to a hilarious comedian or if you are experiencing uh, physical intimacy with a person of the opposite gender uh, or sex, I don't really understand the difference between those two words, uh, then yes, during that time you will be completely free of any subconscious worries about death. It's absolutely true. But you can't be doing those things all the time. You cannot be experiencing sensual pleasure or um, subjecting yourself to entertainment and amusement and, uh, and play. You can't do that all the time. So um, what else do we do? Well, uh, some people have learned that they can deal with death by keeping themselves pure and by seeking wisdom, which effectively... Uh, keeps away that overwhelming subconscious awareness of death. It keeps it at bay. And um, and what about other people? Well, uh, yeah, other people do suffer severe mental illness. That's right. A great deal, again, I'm not in that field, so I'd, I'm not going to put numbers on this, but I'm going to say a great deal of anxiety and depression comes from an inability to deal with death. And one of the reasons that city people um, spend much more money and time with psychiatrists and psychologists than country folk do uh, is because country folk are already more innately aware of death. 
you know, when when a, a little boy goes with his father to help a cow give birth and to bring a calf into the world, that is contact with reality. And then another time he may go with his father to, uh, with, to, to attend to a sick animal, a sheep or a goat or whatever they've got, and the animal dies and, um, and the child is a part and aware of that. That child is an innately more mentally healthy child than a child who's never had any contact or any experience with the realities of birth and death. So um, mental illness in America, yeah, it's, it's a huge problem. And it is a problem that has grown with the secularization of America. Uh, I don't think you'll be surprised when you go and look at some of these numbers yourself, if you're interested, to discover that the massive escalation in uh, mental disease in America kicked off in the early 60s. That's when the, the graph started rising. Yeah, that's right. As, uh, as Ju uh, Christianity and the Bible and Judaism began to be uh, aggressively bulldozed out of the village square, that is one of the natural and inevitable consequences. Now, it doesn't mean every single secular person is going to become mentally ill. It doesn't mean every single religious person is, is mentally healthy. But uh, statistically, over large numbers of people, this is unarguable. Uh, how many seriously mentally ill people in America right now? Well, uh, the absolute lowest figures you can find are about a million. How about the highest? Well, the highest, they say, about one in four, say 75 million people. But look, that's just too high. I'm sorry, it's just not what I see. Even though, like you, I, I sort of have a self-selecting group of people I see, the num you know, people I meet, admittedly, it's, it's, it's different. I'm not in the receiving uh, ward of a psychiatric hospital. But, um, but I don't believe that one in four among us is mentally ill. That number is a, another attempt at a barely concealed agenda of extracting an ever-growing greater share of the national wealth for the mental health profession. There, I've said it. Yes, it is monetarily driven. And you've only got to have a look at DSM 2, 3, 4, and 5 to see how this has grown. The latest diagnostical and statistical manual of the mental health profession lists about 600 mental diseases. Now, those weren't there in 1957. They just weren't. Um, and the reason for these is each one breaks down to a different payable through the health program, whether it's Medicaid or Medi-Cal or uh, Obamacare or insurance programs. But those where, where mental health is covered, payment is predicated on the identification number of that particular disease. And those 600 um, break down to about 157, I think it is, in the latest DSM-5. So, um, but again, this is, it, it's a huge number. Uh, I, I, I don't think there's any question that um, this is all related to an attempt to increase um, tax payer funding and spending for the mental part of the health budget.
Um, I've I've spoken about uh, uh, the the growth of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. I've spoken about it in the past, but um, I think that that's really what's going on. How many people are really um, seriously ill? Uh, it, the as I say, lowest figure about a million. That 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 might be. I don't know. It, it could be. Um, now. How do we avoid this thing I was talking about earlier, which is unquestionably something that plays a role in mental health, namely stopping oneself from being uh, over-impacted by the spiritual aura of death? Um, well, uh, it, it's, it's a sort of involuntary subjugation. Uh, to the damaging impact of, if you like, death consciousness. Well, a number of ways of doing this. Uh, connection with other people, hugely important. You'll see where we're going here because there are certain characteristics that um, mass killers in America have shared largely. Uh, and um, you'll, you'll see where we're going in just a few moments. But uh, one of the most important ways of avoiding ourselves, uh, preventing ourselves from being subjected to the damaging impact of uh, death consciousness, uh, connection with people, especially family, strong connections with family and with friends, very, very important. Uh, another very important part, bringing children into the world, having offspring. Why? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? It conveys spiritual immortality. That's what it is. That's what a child is. You, you live forever through your children who will have children and your great-grandchildren. So, um, again, I, I have not, I, I'm really sorry, I haven't had a chance, I haven't had time to research every single mass killer in America, and again, not counting the Muslim ones, that's a separate category. I haven't done that, but I've got to tell you, I would be very surprised to discover that any significant number of mass killers have children and grandchildren. I'd be very surprised. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, it, I'm going to even go a little bit further on to the next point, which is uh, a sexual relationship. And this, it, needless to say, it's got to be uh, talking about men because uh, almost without exception, mass killers in America have been men. Um, you've got to be in a sexual relationship with a woman. That is life-affirming. Um, so much so, by the way, that um, one of the uh, occasions where the writer Norman Mailer uh, really told the truth, it was, it was, it was quite impressive, really, um, he spoke about the time he had a vasectomy, and he was assured. He says he was absolutely assured by doctors that there is no change to sensual sensation at all. Uh, the, the process of uh, having a vasectomy uh, has no impact on one's enjoyment of the relationship in any way whatsoever. He was assured this, and he wrote afterwards that he said it isn't true. It isn't true because I discovered that just the potential, just the possibility that 
the limitlessness of a new life could emerge from this experience or from this encounter um, had a huge part. It, this is not just a physical sensation. It is spiritual as well. And I've since then heard it from many other men who uh, have had vasectomies as well. And I've also uh, heard from, from many men, and it's something that I'm sure people experience, and that is um, men, uh, they, they get married, and it's wonderful, and everything's great. And uh, usually, uh, particularly early in the, in, the, in the marriage, they may be on birth control. And men have spoken to me and to other people and that people have written about that when a man and his wife decide to start a family, there is a huge change in the sensation, if you like. The whole sensuality of the experience goes through orders of magnitude. Why? Nothing's changed, right? Particularly if, you know, if the types of birth control used were not barrier uh, types. What changed? Just the potential for life. It changes hugely. And so, um, again, you will find that uh, mass killers... Um, have not only um, not had uh, relationships with uh, with women, but also no children, or I should have gone the other way around, I suppose. They've not only had no, uh, very few of them that I'm aware of, none have ch had children. Uh, they also haven't had relationships with women. Uh, it cannot be a homosexual relationship. I just want to specify that real quickly. Uh, and the reason is because uh, there is a certain death-like quality uh, to the homosexual experience. Um, a lot of this became very clear during the AIDS epidemic, where tragically men were dying in, in, in numbers. But at the same time, there was almost a bizarre um, uh, and, and cryptic embrace of it. It was uh, it, there was something there was something almost ghostly about what was going on during that. And that was just something I uh, witnessed and, and experienced at the time. But uh, even on a, on a very basic level, uh, you know, a, a, a heterosexual relationship obviously revolves around what we call the birth canal or the canal of life, if you like. Uh, it's not hard. Uh, to understand that there's another canal um, in the body, and this is the canal that the body uses to eject um, dead cells and waste and so on. Uh, and so if, if we would speak about a life canal on, on one hand, we'd have to speak about a death canal on the other. And if what we're talking about is reaffirming in ourselves a vitality and a life connection, then for a man to have a relationship with a woman is hugely life-affirming, uh, bringing children into the world, obviously. Um, but anyway, that, that, of course, is, I think, straightforward and I think easily understood uh, by everybody. Um, the, um, th and I'm, I'm talking about mass murders, uh, I have to tell you, as opposed to uh, crimes that are a little bit different where... Even the, the murders that take place in St. Louis and Chicago and Baltimore and Newark, uh, these, these murders, have been, a lot have been in the news lately. Uh, I, I, would, I would identify them, yeah, of course, senseless and crazy and criminal and horrible, 
but um, but there's something going on. There's uh, there's a reason for it. Um, it's it it either makes me feel uh, I have to do it to maintain my respect, uh, or else there was uh, there was a woman involved, or there was drugs involved, but there were monetary reasons. So all of those killings are understandable on that level. But when a, um, a when when two boys in Columbine murder a whole bunch of their their schoolmates, where the same thing happens in Parkland, uh, what happened recently in El Paso, what happened recently in Dayton, Ohio, for these it's it's insanity, right? And that's precisely the point. It really is. Uh, bec- just there is no reason, you know, and, and sometimes. You'll find news reports, oh, we don't yet know the motive. It, it's silly. I mean, of course you don't know the motive. There isn't a motive. There won't be a motive. And, uh, and I think it's just important to understand that. And so um, uh, that is, uh, th- these are, are ways in which we deal with life. Excuse me, the ways we deal with death. We have a relationship with a woman. We bring children into the world. Uh, we uh, we value wisdom and the, the 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 spiritual understandings that that involve wisdom and that bring wisdom. Um, absolutely, this this is uh, exactly what we're talking about. Um, needless to say, a relationship with a woman, um, rape, obviously, needless to say, is is not uh, is not part of that and. Um, and uh, nothing, nothing like that, obviously. So, um, by the way, Bible study, very life-affirming as well. So all of these things, there are many people in America that are doing automatically. And guess what? They don't become mass killers. But there are a whole lot of people in America that don't. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the commonalities of uh, mass killers in America, yes, mostly they are men. Um, a disproportionate number are white. There have been black mass killers, but um, not, not in the same, uh, not, not to the same extent as uh, as white. And and I've said, you know, the reason I'm I'm quite convinced of that is that um, uh, is that blacks tend to be better communicators in a sense. They are, are better connectors uh, than, than whites. In fact, many of the casual greetings that you might, you know, throw at somebody in the street as you go by um, start off in black culture and then get absorbed into white culture. And so being um, connected, at least having connections with just being connected with other people is very important. And obviously, most of the mass killers have been very disconnected. This has been identified again and again and again. Uh, many of them have also been, and this this is a very, very weird thing, but as I went through as many of them as I could look at, it would appear that many of them are what one would call involuntarily celibate. These are people who, if they're school, you know, they're the, the, the guys uh, at school that the girls would never talk to or have anything to do with. Uh, among older men, it is um, men who, again, are socially awkward or just for whatever reason, 
have not only have no con uh, connection with women, but feel incapable of doing so. Now, one of the exceptions was the um, in 2017, the Las Vegas, that horrible Las Vegas killing of 50, 60 people. Um, that guy doesn't fit all of these boxes. And uh, my conviction on that one is that we don't know the whole story uh, in exactly the same way. We don't know the whole story of the Oklahoma City bombing, um, the idea that McVeigh was the sole originator and designer and executor there. I just don't believe that is the case. And uh, I also believe the extremely rapid demolition of the Murrah building in Oklahoma City um, during the Clinton administration. Yeah, I'm, I'm suspicious. I really am. But uh, I have not investigated a great deal. Some people I know have and uh, have been extremely persuasive as far as I'm concerned with things that they have uncovered. But that's a different topic. Uh, I certainly do not believe we know the whole story on the Las Vegas killer. But in general, okay, that is um, uh, what is going down, what is happening. Now, um, how about um, killings in general? How about murders? So um, murders in general, not not mass uh, not mass killings as mass shootings as we've been talking about, but um, murders per se, it shifts as the rate per hundred thousand in America moves up and down between six and ten uh, over the past number of years. It translates into roughly eighteen thousand murders a year, up to a high of about thirty thousand murders a year. I mean, it's a huge number right and um and it's just it's important to bear this in mind because uh, obviously when uh, when innocent people in a club or in a school or anywhere get gunned down by a crazy madman um, of course it's horrifying and it's so easy to see ourselves in that situation um and uh, and it, we overlook the 18, 20,000 murders a year. Now, also point out that that's not assaults. The assaults with intent to commit murder that result in emergency room visits are over a million a year. So when you hear of reduced murder rates, and I did a whole podcast on this a few months back, but when you hear of reduced murder rates, please don't be gullible and assume uh, how wonderfully the government is doing in, and how effectively policing is reducing homicides. No, uh, the reduced number of homicides is a tribute only to the rising effectiveness of emergency room medicine in American hospitals. The number of people trying to kill other people is crazily high, as high as it ever was. It's just that um, emergency services have become so much better at dealing with the trauma of attempted murder. But even so, about uh, 18,000, 20,000 people murdered a year in America. So that boils down to about 70 people a day are murdered in America, about 70 every day, right? Note that that's much more than the, the total number of killings in Dayton, Ohio, and in El Paso, Texas. Uh, Every day, every single day. But remember what I said, nature is reticent about death. 
And uh, while it is true that every now and then you see a line of cars with their lights going on heading towards a, a funeral, for the most part, when you think about how many people uh, die each day in America from old age, the extent to which we're aware of it is minimal. How many people die in America of old age every day? Say old age disease. Uh, say 7,500 people, about 7,500 people roughly. To give you an idea, I mean, some sometimes it's 8,000, sometimes. But this is a fairly uh, accurate number. 7,500 people dying in America every day from old age and disease. So, again, you'd say you figure out what proportion of America's population lives in your city, and you can figure out how, you know, you should see more of it, but there's a privacy there's a privacy and a reticence about death on every level. So um, about 70 people killed by murder every day. How many people killed on road accidents every day? About 110 people killed on the road every day. Again, innocent people minding their own business. Um, something goes wrong, car goes out of control, crosses the center divide, and a, a family driving down the other way is wiped out. So 110 people are killed every day on the roads in America just through accidents, and 70 people murdered, and about 7,500 people dying of old age. So any ordinary day in the United States, shall we say between 7,000 and 8,000 people are dying. If we were confronted with the visible evidence of, say, 7,500 bodies a day, none of us could live our lives you literally wouldn't be possible to live. That's why it is so important on a social and a private level to keep the subconscious impact of death down. And I want to tell you something now very important. This is why responsible newspapers and magazines and news media and organizations and television since the 1800s never published pictures of dead people. When did this change? Vietnam. Politics intruded, and ending the Vietnam War became the governing moral imperative in America, in the name of which anything was permissible, including publishing pictures of dead people. And it probably did have an impact. Um, papers then began showing pictures of dead people, and understandably, it drove America crazy. I wasn't living here. I hadn't immigrated to the States yet at that point. But uh, it drove America mad. And this is why Dayton, El Paso, Orlando, Las Vegas drive us crazy. We see the corpses. Death overwhelms us. It really does. So do we really want to end death? Of course. Will we? <laughs> of course not. Uh, want to save over a hundred lives a day? If, I mean, right? It was terrible that all these people were killed in Texas and Ohio. Terrible. But more than that number of people are wiped out on the roads every day. So couldn't we at least stop that massacre? Sure, it's easy. All we've got to do is make a national speed limit of 20 miles an hour. Solved. The problem is completely solved. Nothing, it's finished. There will be no more road deaths in America if we make a national, okay, so why don't we do it? And the answer is, 
We're not willing to. We are willing to risk lives in the interests of certain other matters. Uh, do a high proportion of people climbing Everest die? Yes. A much higher proportion of people who climb Everest die than a proportion of people who play chess or tennis. So surely people shouldn't climb Everest, but they do because the risk is worth it for something else they get out of it. And so no one seriously suggests eliminating all road deaths in America. Nobody suggests that. So we, we, we're not really always honest about what we say, you know, as a society or as a group. Um, uh, you want to, you want to save, seven, you know, that 70 people are murdered every day in America. Are you willing to really do something to save those lives? Well, for the next two years, execute anybody who takes someone else's life within a week of his capture. That's all. Practicable? No. Will we do it? No. But if you want to really end mass shootings, could we? Well, yes. But is it by banning guns? No, because that's not the issue here. What is the issue? Well, the reason I don't think people are going to be willing to do what it takes to avoid and to slow down and to eliminate uh, mass shootings is, um, well, I think violent video games definitely play a role. Uh, the growing number of single men are you willing to do something about that? Are you willing to adjust the tax code to make it possible and easier for men and women to marry one another? Are you going to stop glorifying women in the workplace over women at home? Are you willing to do that? I don't think so. Are you willing to change governmental policies that make it economically profitable for women to have babies out of wedlock? Right, because that's a huge part of this problem. Absent fathers, a huge part of the problem. Um, you willing to do something about abortion? Do you not think that an abortion culture cheapens life? Do you not think that on some level, life is made, yeah, cheap by the extent to which abortion is such... Uh, Certainly in the Democratic Party, it's seen as a social good. It's a positive value. You're willing to do all these things? Guns may be a factor. If it were effective, if, they was, if the government ever was able to do anything effectively, and you could stop outlaws from having, if you could do all of that, it would be a teensy-weensy factor alongside the other ones I've spoken of. Yes, let's reduce the number of single men. Let's reduce the number of single men who do not get into jobs or into schools because of the unseemly pressures they put on women getting these positions. Obviously, it comes with a cost. Right? I think it's wonderful, right? Women have the opportunity to do anything they like. Wonderful. But notice now that men are being pushed out. The constant talk about toxic masculinity, the hostility towards men, all of the stuff. You really want to do something. Just take a look at the people who are committing the uh, mass shootings. 
and you'll get a clue as to what are some of the things we would really need to do as a society if we really wanted to seriously cut back or eliminate mass shootings. And I think you'll quickly see that like eliminating road and accidents, society is not willing to do what it really would take to eliminate mass shootings any more than it's willing to do what it would really take to eliminate road deaths. And uh, look, um, I'm sure you realize this is all very heavily politicized. You know, all one hears, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm recording this uh, in the uh, nearly the middle of August 2019. And so all you've been hearing now almost nonstop um, was, is the, the shooting at Walmart in El Paso and the shooting in a club in Dayton, Ohio. But how many of you heard that on Wednesday a man went on a mass killing spree? He killed four people, which, as you know, is the uh, point at which the government uh, and the FBI regarded as a mass killing. Uh, four people, well, that's a mass killing. Well, there was a mass killing in Southern California, okay, it was in Garden Grove, uh, sorry, in Santa Ana in Orange County, and the guy comes out of a 7-Eleven, um, and um, he, ha he was arrested, captured, because he had sliced to death four people and injured a whole bunch of others. Uh, over a period of about two hours, he, sim <laughs> he simply attacked uh, one person after another. Um, I think three or four ended up severely injured and are hospitalized, and four of them are murdered. Okay, so um, why don't you hear about this? Well, for one thing, he didn't use a gun. He used a knife, and that doesn't fit the narrative because everything is now politicized, and uh, the idea is, we see, if we can eliminate guns, well, that will solve the problem. No, it won't. And this story is not told. The other reason this story is not told is that uh, the uh, criminal here was a Hispanic, and his victims were all Hispanic. Look, I hate doing this, I've got to tell you. It rubs me the wrong way. It's against my instincts I, to even mention the, the ethnic background, whoever it was. But I have to because that's the culture in which we live, and uh, it's the terms in which I am forced to convey information. For instance, um, I, I have to tell you, I think, that uh, the majority of mass shootings are done by white perpetrators, not blacks. And um, when I looked into that uh, carefully, what I discovered was is that the discrepancy is far larger than I had originally thought. Just in terms of my impression, I thought, you know what, I, I'm sure it's 60, 70 percent of the mass shootings are whites, not blacks. Um, and given that in terms of overall homicides, black criminals are overrepresented, well, you would have thought then in mass shootings they'd be equally represented, but they're not. But the truth is they're even less representative in mass shootings. I'll tell you why. 
Why did the government settle on four victims as the, uh, the cutoff point above which four and more is a mass shooting? Why not six or seven or three? or f Like, why? And uh, I'm quite sure that number was chosen, and it's a little bit low, I must tell you, uh, but I'm sure the number was chosen in order to uh, ramp up the number of black um, mass killers. Because in reality, if you set the number, shall we say, eight, the number of black mass killers, very, very low. <laughs> very low. But they didn't want it to be quite that low because, once again, it disturbs the narrative. The narrative is that this is nothing but guns. That's all that does. That's all that's involved. And uh, this simply is not the case. I mean, the fact is that uh, if you look at um, most shootings, of course, most homicides are either family sides or felony-related, right? They're either um, family squabbles, which include sexual squabbles, uh, or else they are, um, they are uh, criminally-related, drug deals and so on. And many of them are for victims. So to call for mass killing is, is inaccurate and uh, is devious. It has a political reason. Uh, the reason is to bump up the black number so nobody has to deal with this uncomfortable question of why is it that blacks commit more violent crime in general but far less of the mental uh, excuse me far less of the uh, mass shootings the answer i believe the answer is that um, uh, that ordinary homicides familicides and uh, felony related homicides they are rational right they're criminal they're evil all right goes without saying all the bad things but they're understandable uh, now drive-by shootings sounds crazy and irrational but if you understand the dynamics of turf wars then it's also rational but mass shootings are not rational correct they are the work of madmen. And my guess, and again, I don't have stats on this, but my guess is that there are fewer black people who are seriously mentally ill than white people. Why do I say that? Because I think that uh, a large number of black people are still church-connected, and even if they're not church-connected, they are human-connected. I think there are fewer black lonely men than there are white lonely men. I think there are far more, proportionately in every way, uh, far more white young men sitting in basement rooms playing with video games or watching pornography than black men. I do. I think that. Uh, why do I think that? Look, uh, it's, it's my impression. Is yours completely wrong? Go to my website at rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, use the contact me tab. Tell me your experiences is different. But mine is that um, that that is a white behavior. Um, isolation, 
guys by themselves playing video games in some dark corner or whatever else they're doing. Um, I think, you know, black single men are, um, are out there. Now, unfortunately, very often uh, committing things that are terrible, a lot of mischief and, and worse. But you don't go crazy from hanging out with your gang and committing criminal activities. You have other problems. You ruin your life, you die young, but you don't go mad. And you do go mad if you are a, uh, a, a guy in your 20s or 30s and you, you have no connections and to the extent that you do earn your living, you probably do it online, um, but who knows, you might be on welfare, you're, you're, you're watching unhealthy things, you're playing video games. Yeah, I, I think you're white. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I think you're white. If that's, if that's you, you're white. And, uh, and, and so it's really important to, to understand what is going on here and what the mass shootings are really about. Um, you know, there was a very interesting Jewish sociologist. He was really one of the fathers of that sort of whole field of sociology to the extent that it can even be called a science, but it's certainly a field. Um, in this would be the towards the very end of the 19th century. His name was Emile Durkheim. He lived in France. I don't think he was born there, but it doesn't matter. Uh, Emile Durkheim um, pointed out that suicides were increasing. He was measuring this in French society, and about 1897, suicides were going up. But he says there were huge differences among the affected populations. And, and this information from more than 100 years ago um, is as true now as it was then. Number one, said Emile Durkheim, men were more likely than women to commit suicide. The chances of a man committing suicide are dramatically decreased if the man is married and has children. Hello? Remember you heard it here first? Um, Emil Durkheim said that uh, uh, religious people exhibited far lower suicide rates. Um, he said that the prevalence of suicide was linked to the level of social integration. Uh, when a person felt little sense of connection or belonging, he could be led to question the value of his existence and take his life. All right, very interesting. Emil Durkheim, writing over 100 years ago, tells us a whole lot about mass killings because here's one of the most important but forgotten facts about mass killings. They are usually acts of suicide, right? How often does the, uh, how often does the mass killer survive? Very seldom. It is an act of suicide. And so unlike um, ordinary criminal killings, mass killings are irrational. They are the work of people who have lost their minds at some level or another. They're really important. So um, I, wanted, I wanted to make that absolutely clear. And, uh, and to, to just elaborate upon this, um, again, not to be morbid, my friends, not to be morbid at all, but... Um, a really important question, in other words, to, to determine how connected you are, to determine how high a risk you are for mental instability, you need to ask yourself how many people would mourn you when you die, all right? And, you know, not, you know, not for any, not because you're famous and you 
um, and and you did uh, you you know you invented something. No, just because there are people to whom you are important. Now that number used to be much higher on average than it is today, and I, I hope and pray that uh, you listening to my words right now have a whole lot of people, you know, ten, twenty, thirty people who would really mourn your going, but. I've got to tell you, I think the number, particularly among this high-risk group of alienated young males who are disconnected uh, socially and sexually and family-wise in every way at all, um, how many people can they count who would miss them? And they probably feel very few. Now, I'm not saying we walk through life. (laughs) Once a month, I have a little ritual. I count how many people would mourn me. No, of course not. It's a totally intuitive thing. Uh, you just sort of intuit. Yeah, there are people to whom I'm important, and wow, what a difference that makes to my life. So, so that's really an important point. How many people would mourn you? Uh, you you got to ask yourself, you know, what are the primal building blocks of happiness? What are they? It's job, not in any order, by the way, family, connection, community, a spiritual connection with God. These are basic building blocks of happiness and uh, yes they are very quickly vanishing and the outcome well um, loneliness isolation depression anxiety uh, drug abuse and yeah death so it's really important that when you hear people saying oh it's now time we've had enough it's time for new gun laws Uh, you keep hearing that right and as I've said a few minutes ago on this on this show, I would listen to that, provided you could show me instances where government actions of banning anything actually work. Drugs, alcohol in the past, in, in the early 1900s, 1920 to 1933. Yeah, like I told you, they don't work. Number one. Number two, if you would truly examine all the common factors in mass shootings and see that guns are one of many common factors. And I see no willingness at all on the part of society to address these other root causes we're talking about, the things that cause the isolation and anxiety and misery and loneliness and depression and drug abuse. And, and yeah, yeah, nobody... Nobody's talking about those things at all. Um, the uh, the weapons, I mean, my goodness. Uh, I didn't go to high school in the United States of America, but I got a lot of friends who talk to, who tell me how in high school they used to keep their rifles. And by the way, the rifles are, are just the same as so-called assault rifles, right? Uh, as I, I don't think anyone listening to the show needs to be told that uh, we're not talking about automatic weapons. We're talking about semi-automatic weapons. And, uh, w- you know, boys had them. Boys had a twenty-two rifle. Some had a, a bigger rifles. In, in high school, they kept them either they – in early years, they actually took them into class and put them in the corner. In later years, they left them in their, uh, their cars or trucks in the school parking lot. And, um, and there were not mass shootings back then. By the way, one of the huge changes that came about – you know, and I'm always talking about 1960 or 1962, the early 60s. Here's a very interesting statistic. All shootings – 
of more than uh, you know a certain number of people. In other words, so-called mass shootings, four people or more, up till 1960, all of them were family or criminal-based. They all had to do with felonies or they were family rows and squabbles and arguments. Everything changed. After 1960, they began to be, uh, um, you know, schools, places, uh, gatherings where there was no connection at all between the shooter and his victims. Why? Because in 60, 62, round about there, there was this huge increase in mental problems in the United States. Why? Because there was this huge increase in the extirpation of the basic institutions of human connection in the United States. So um, uh, you, we just got to recognize that, uh, that what happened in the early 60s is that various institutions, church obviously being an important one, um, began to be dismantled. Family, uh, I mean, you didn't have a lot of children born out of wedlock in 1957. A child born out of a man, a boy born out of wedlock, not only has a higher, much higher likelihood of ending up criminally involved, but a much higher likelihood of mental instability, a higher likelihood of drugs. It's a huge problem that children are born to single mothers and uh, children who never, ever know who their fathers are. A huge problem. But we're not talking about that. And that's why I say that I don't believe society really wants to end the so-called mass shootings. Um, by the way, the, the uh, increase in all these negative indicators of growing alienation in society, they have uh, not only did it start climbing meteorically in about 1960, but it's actually it's been um, uh, growing exponentially. In other words, just I was just looking at the growth of some of these negative indicators between 2000 and 2017. Just those eight years, 2000 to 2017, um, drug overdose deaths went from three per 100,000 of our population, right? That means that if you live in a town of only 100,000 people, uh, on average, three of them would have died of drug overdose in 2000. By 2017, 15, five times more. And the number's gone up between 2017 and 2019. Uh, suicide. This is a very important indicator of what we're talking about, right? Because when you kill yourself, uh, you it, it is an act of somebody who is mentally in very bad shape. The despondency, the level of distress is far higher than any normal mentally healthy person can comprehend. So again, looking at the years 2000 to 2017 in the United States, uh, suicides went from 10 per 100,000 to 15 per 100. These are very significant numbers. 10 to 15 in just those eight years in suicides. It's really, it's really pretty amazing. Um, number of children born out of wedlock was 20% of children in America in 1985, and it's 40% in 2013. It's now higher than that in 2019. Uh, crime statistics track that trend almost precisely.
But as the number of children born out of wedlock went up, to the same extent, you could parallel the two graphs, so did crime statistics. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Uh, you can also watch church membership decline. Now, I'm a little bit wary about that particular statistic. I'll talk about the details another time, but I think uh, some of that is also accounted for by people leaving mainstream denominations and joining um you know, pop-up brand-new small evangelical churches that do not get absorbed into the statistical calculations. Um, I've spoken a little bit about the extent to which technology uh, really exacerbates the tendency of people to live their lives in complete isolation. There are people now who work from home, play games at home, watch videos at home, and they don't talk you know, and to the extent they connect with other people, it's through chatting uh, and through email. This is a big problem because when you connect with somebody face-to-face, -face, uh, there is an empathy that builds up. Um, you know, and I'm sure even a little child picks up on this. Now, sociopathic little kids, maybe not. But ordinary people can watch from the facial expression of the person they're talking to that they've said something hurtful, that they've said something that was not nice and people who want to then learn from that but if your only communication is through technology then you don't ever find that out that's a normal part of socializing you simply do not get exposed to so um what is the antidote well i've spoken about it i've been talking about it all along um engaging with other people in ways that are are, are really beneficial really beneficial for human activity. Um, as I said, connect, I mean, having a, a sexual relationship with a woman and not a whole bunch of serial ones because that just leaves everybody miserable. We're, all, we're familiar with the extent to which the women are miserable and thereafter feel so embarrassed and ashamed of that meaningless hookup that they then uh, feel a need to retroactively in their minds classify it as a rape. I get that. I'm, I'm totally sympathetic. Uh, but deep down, the men involved also have a diminished sense of themselves. But, um, but a proper relationship, a relationship in which children can be brought into the world and raised as part of a family. Uh, you know, many people have joked over the years, uh, you know, somebody comes into a busy house. I remember saying it to myself, uh, saying it myself. People would come in. You know, we, uh, we got a house of seven children. And um, and then a whole bunch of friends are there. Uh, to this day, as I think many of you know, I cannot write my books in my office. I need a, a, a noise around me because uh, some of my best books were written with this noise going on just the other side of a thin door. Uh, and people would sometimes say to me, you must go crazy trying to work over here. And my answer would always be, are you cr <laughs> are you crazy? Uh, it's just too busy for me to go crazy. I don't have a chance to go nuts here. It's impossible. Nobody goes crazy from too much human connection. I pointed out in the past that solitary confinement, if you listening to me are a busy homeschooling mom, just for instance, I bet the word solitary confinement sounds like a reward to you, right? It sounds like something your husband might give you on your birthday. Okay, darling, tell you what. 
I'll take care of the kids and everything for the whole day. You don't have to see me or anybody else. You'll be in solitary confinement. Yippee! I mean, that's good. But in the real world, solitary confinement is a torture. People go crazy from zero human connection, not from too much human connection. So, uh, so I think I, I think that should be uh, clear. I think to everybody, and uh, and and that's why I say that uh, obviously banning guns is not going to end mass shootings. Obviously not. But uh, even after I list for you the things that would ban. Uh, shootings. The truth is that a liberal, secular society is simply not willing to strengthen marriage, strengthen family. It's not willing to do the gutsy and courageous things necessary to reduce the number of children born to single moms who'll never know their fathers. No. Um, for the most part, society, secular, liberal society, not willing to take those courageous steps. Um, not happening. So, um, uh, right, so that's it. Um, why are so few women mass murders? Uh, same thing, because women connect better than men. And uh, black women, again, I look, it's a generalization. Um, and, and, you know, go ahead. Oh, you're a racist. You know what? I'll worry about you insulting me with that term when you can define it. You tell me what the word racist is defined as, and I'll pay. By the way, while you're at it, why don't you define anti-Semitism as well? I, I regard both the terms anti-Semite and racist as nothing more than bludgeons used by the secular liberal left to silence conservatives. That's all it is. So, um, so yeah, I don't doubt for a moment that black women are better communicators than, than and better connectors than white women, uh, and uh, white women are much better connectors than white men. Hence, fewer. I think. Look, I think a lot of white women go to psychologists and therapists, and I think that's that's uh, something else going on there. But in terms of actually going nuts, fewer women go nuts than men. And I'm sorry, I shouldn't. I, 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 that's a disparaging term for, for a very, very serious problem. Uh, mental instability affects more men, affects men, men more than it does women. For this basic reason, being connected with other human beings is an incredible bulwark against losing your mind. Um, so, in the same way that loneliness and disconnected can drive you nuts, drive you crazy, forgive me. Um, in the same way, death is the ultimate lonely condition, isn't it? Um, I mean, gosh, that's that's it, right? You, uh, on as you say goodbye to the world and get ready to embrace your maker, at that moment you are like the loneliest you've ever been since birth. Because at least at birth, um, you found yourself gazing into the loving eyes of your mother. But yeah, death is lonely. And so when I've been speaking all along today about Tum'ah, that uh, impactfulness of death consciousness uh, causing mental instability, absolutely. And you should be able to understand it very well now. Yeah, this overwhelming subconscious impact of death can drive anybody mental. Uh, 
some people overcome it or deal with it by no, d donating money to find medical cures for death, as I told you nearer the beginning. Uh, some throw themselves into the pursuit of pleasure to stop thinking about death. Uh, some arrange to have their bodies frozen, and that way they tell themselves they're not really going to die. Um, some devote themselves to repealing the Second Amendment, believing that'll end death. Uh, others fight to end capital punishment, which is a bit funny because the truth is capital punishment helps to save lives. But, my friends, as we arrive at the end of a very long show today, but one I think that... Uh, I really wanted to deal with in one show because of the importance. Uh, we arrive at the practical part, the practical three minutes of today's show. Here it is. Your job, and for that matter mine, is not to end death in the world. Your job and mine is not to stop all the road deaths. Your job and mine, no, it's not to end all the shootings. Um, is it to end all the over a hundred people who die from homicides every day? No, that's not your job either. So what is your job? I'll tell you. Um, your, your job is something that is laid out very clearly in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verses 9 through 15. Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself and those you are responsible for. Your job is to protect the lives of, first of all, yourself, and then those in your family, and then moving outwards in the concentric circles of your connectedness to your friends, your community, and so on. Um, make sure that people live healthily. Make sure that people drive carefully. Make sure that people do not uh, get involved or come close to um, uh, criminal and homicidal people. Um, that's what it is. Uh, do everything you can to make sure that crime is punished. All crime. If a bicycle is stolen in your neighborhood, do everything you can to get the miscreant severely punished because crime escalates. The, uh, the teenage boy who gets away with stealing a bicycle today is tomorrow's hold-up artist and the next day's murderer. And so, uh, yeah, take care of the lives of the people around you, the people you're responsible. Uh, teach your children to drive defensively. Uh, make sure that your family and your friends never, and I'm serious about this, never you look at their cell phones while their car is in motion, period. Just don't do it. Um, again, I'm not, I'm not going to give you the numbers or anything. Everyone can figure this out for themselves, but... Uh, defeat death by loving life. That's how it's done. Defeat death by loving life. And so, my friends, we, uh, we come to the end. I um, want to remind you that this Sunday, August 18, I'm speaking in Carrollton, Texas at Covenant Church. Uh, you're welcome there. You're welcome to watch it on Covenant Church live stream. Um, on September, 13, uh, September 11th through the 13th, I'm speaking at the Proven Conference. I'm speaking at the Proven Conference in Champaign, Illinois. Uh, and you go on to, to, to read more about it, go on the website, theprovenconference.com. 
Uh, it's my friend Jim Cockrum who knows more about how to build an online business than anybody else I know. Now, obviously, there are other people who do, but even Amazon recognizes that uh, Jim is in the top 10% of all the 2 million people who have third-party businesses on Amazon. Uh, all of this is going to be discussed on uh, September the 11th through the 13th at theprovenconference.com. And so if you have any interest in developing a second stream of income, uh, which I strongly recommend you should be doing, and uh, if you have thoughts of doing it online, uh, I really take a very serious look at this because not only will you get a whole bunch of hard information, uh, you will also, and this is just as important in my experience, you will meet hundreds of people who are doing it. And that is so very encouraging. It really is. Um, you all know about the uh, cruise I'm doing with Glenn Beck and Dave Barton, Come Sail Away. And uh, there is a Lappin discount available um, for, I think it was a total of 25 cabins. I, I'm, I, I'm not absolutely sure if uh, those are all gone already or not, but it will be easy enough to find out. And uh, that, ta that's, that is all the uh, announcements for today, other than the sales promotion, because here is how you help me. You buy from my store. You'll find that at youneedarabbi.com. Yeah, youneedarabbi.com or rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, go to the store and take a look at the Thought Tool books, volumes 1, 2, and 3. Get any one of them or all three together. Or, by the way, you may want to download it on Kindle. If, you, if you're a Kindle reader, go straight to Amazon and get Thought Tools Volumes 1, 2, and 3, or separately. And uh, what you'll have there in each volume, uh, in each volume you'll have 50 or more uh, beautiful ideas that you, first of all, will uplift you and, uh, and help you to think life thoughts, not death thoughts and also uh, provide you with serious topics of conversation for meaningful interactions with people you care about. So all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com, the Thought Tools volumes, and uh, that means that with reluctance, now you might think to yourself, I've only been talking for so long because I can't bear to say goodbye. That's, that's not true. I, I'm, sa I'm sorry to say goodbye. But uh, the reason I've been speaking so long today is because of the importance of this topic. I know that there are many of you who like a long podcast. You, you, you pause it. You come back. There are many of you who do not like it. I'm really sorry. Uh, I can't please everybody on that, obviously. So I just please myself and do the length that works best for the topic that I have been working on. Uh, posting this podcast a day or two later than normal, and you'll forgive me for that, but again, it's just taken an enormous amount of work to organize these ideas in my mind so as that I can impart them to you with at least some degree of coherence, even if it's not anywhere near the level that I was aiming for and for which I, I hoped to achieve, even um, though I did not. So uh, until we are together next week, my prayers and wishes for you are good times this week, life-affirming times with your family, with your friends, with your God. 
and with your finances. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. 